hi, I'm Graham. And I'm Chris, and we're the Podcast Boys. I've kept it in. <laughs> Good work, I like it. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Pet Shop Boys In-Depth, the unofficial podcast for Pet Shop Boys fans all over the world. This is the last episode in this season, so do get in touch via Twitter or Facebook and let us know what your thoughts are, which episodes you've enjoyed the most, and what you think we should cover if we decide to make some more in the future. A massive thank you for listening. If it wasn't for you, this would just be two middle-aged men talking rubbish in a garden shed. Thank you for giving us an excuse to meet up and talk about our favourite subject. I should also say thank you to you too, Chris, and your wife and family for letting us turn your garden shed into a makeshift recording studio. Thank you for letting me into the inner sanctum, kind of like the Royal Opera House, but with a much cheaper bar. United by a shared love of one band, can two amateurs like us produce a podcast befitting the world's greatest synth pop duo? There's only one way to find out. Right, Graham, I've got a killer question for you. Who is your favourite pet shop boy? I'm going to make it easy and narrow it down to two for you. <laughs> is it Neil or is it Chris? Wow. I mean, that's not really a question that you can ask, is it? It's a little bit like picking your, your favourite son or daughter, isn't it? <laughs> well, obviously, I would default to that same answer. Of, I like them equally. I think secretly it's Chris, isn't it? If I had the bell here, Graham, I'd <laughs> definitely give it a ring. That is the correct answer. He's my favourite pet shop boy too. And do you know what? I think he'd even be Neil's favourite pet shop boy as well. If Neil is the Pet Shop Boys head, Chris is the heart. He defines the Pet Shop Boys identity, Pet Shop Boys attitude, essentially he sets the Pet Shop Boys North Star. To most casual viewers or listeners, Neil would be the Pet Shop Boys. He's the singer, the yeah. front man, the spokesperson. If you were looking in, you'd just see, well, who's that moody looking fella behind the keyboards? My dad always used to say, you know, the front man is the band. You know, mm. you need a good front man. He's the one that carries the band. Everybody else then just falls behind it. But I think that's that's kind of what we like about Pet Shop Boys is that the things that we like are not what is immediately visible to everybody else you know there is this anti-pop not what you expect element of it and I think when we followed the career over the years we know that Chris is a, an integral part of that I've not met either of them but I do read that when journalists are talking to them there's always this comment that they are surprised when they meet them and that they find out that they're not their public image Neil's a little bit more quieter whereas Chris is the chatty funny one Chris has got amazing comic timing. Neil will just give this download of two minutes cultural theory and you know that Chris will just cut in at the end with this self-depreciating one-liner. Neil's pointed out quite a few times that Chris has always been crystal clear on his likes and dislikes and I think they kind of use this as a compass to define pet shop buyers by what they won't do. Certainly this was the case when they first started out. They wouldn't smile in photos just because somebody asked them to. They wouldn't jump up and down on TV shows. They wouldn't pose in front of brightly coloured backgrounds. And I don't think this was because they were being deliberately obtuse. Their image, I think, is rooted in honesty. It's about not being fake or pretending. So when they were in the glare of the spotlight, they were still being their authentic selves. And I think Chris was absolutely key to this ethos. By simply being himself, he was setting out the Pet Shop Boys philosophy at the same time. And it's Chris, of course, that hisses that line, don't look triumphant, on that West End Girls Top of the Pops performance when they reach number one. I love the idea that by wearing a cap and glasses, Chris is essentially preserving himself. And when he takes them off, he just simply dissolves into the crowd. It's a bit like that early Native American belief that 
the camera can steal your soul. You talked about Neil being the leader to the casual observer. I remember when the Glastonbury Dream World show, where obviously the screen didn't go up and Neil was essentially out there by himself. My mum and dad watched that. My dad didn't notice that Chris wasn't there. He, <laughs> <laughs> he thought he was a normal pet shop boy show with, with, with Neil out front. But I guess this is reinforced by all of the presentation. Neil's literally always two steps in front of Chris. Think of that Western Girls video. But really, we know that it's Neil that hides behind Chris when they disagree with something or they don't want to do something Neil will say Chris is furious with that choice of photo or that artwork or whatever it is Chris is essentially the backseat driver that's the truth and of course he made standing still an art form his whole contribution is about understatement isn't it to the point where the first manager Tom Watkins thought that Neil should sack Chris because he, it was quite evident that he didn't do anything there isn't really a lot that you can do when you're a keyboard player and also when you're in a pop band it must be really really difficult to make that decision to stand still you sort of think that you would dance at the back or you would you know you'd be playing keyboard even more so when in those early days Neil's not this traditional front person so he's not the big presence he's not carrying it all on his shoulders so even braver decision to just stand more still than Neil is Neil's understated as well isn't he yeah but I guess the difference is that Neil always wanted to be a pop star ever since he was very young but it's plainly obvious that that was never on Chris's agenda and uh, you can tell he's still completely bewildered and embarrassed by the whole thing. There's an interview from 2016 with the Quietus website where Chris says, and I've got a note here, he says, I have a very detached way of dealing with everything. I've always just looked on rather than feeling like I'm a part of it. And I think that comes from the fact that it's just very odd to become a pop star at all. It's got a built-in surreality to it. From that moment onwards, nothing seems totally real. If weird things happen, it's almost like it's not happening to you. Even if things aren't going particularly well, it's still interesting, isn't it? In fact, in many ways, it's better. He's just got the best job in the world, though, for for observing pop surrealism. He gets to be wholly involved in this music process, but yet slightly detached from it and watch it all from the sidelines. You know, sometimes when you see him in TV performances or or when they're playing live, yes, he stood behind this keyboard, but despite the sunglasses and pretending to be uninterested, almost that he doesn't care. You you just feel that he's watching, like a (laughs) hawk, observing things watching Neil, watching the technical staff, watching the crowd, actually just making sure that everything's exactly as it should be. I, I don't imagine that he does the telling off that very quietly goes to sends Neil. Sends Neil and, out. <laughs> yeah, sends Neil to do that. <laughs> Obviously, Chris loves music, particularly dance music, but I don't think he likes a lot of the fuss that surrounds it. I don't think he would describe himself as a music fan as such. There's a quote that I've always remembered from a very early Melody Maker interview. I've got it in one of my scrapbooks, Graham, from November 1985. So right from the beginning, part of a Melody Maker series called The State of Pot. So very Pet Shop yeah. Boys thing to contribute to. And Chris says something which stuck with me. He says, on Saturday, I went into Olympus Sports and Virgin in Oxford Street. Olympus was full of really trendy kids who know what they want out of life. Whereas Virgin was full of dreary old hippies, tragic old students, train spotting types. I think that's what he thinks of tragic fans like us, like me and you. Yeah, I'm going to say particularly <laughs> ones that set up their own podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> We've got nice trainers on though so uh, and we like nice coats so maybe we're not completely tragic 
I think he he loves writing the songs, but after that, I sense his interest in the process diminishes. And in that sense, I don't think he himself is a huge Pet Shop Boys fan. From I remember some of the local radio interviews that they did to promote Hotspot, when some of these DJs will put them on the spot or have a quiz about the Pet Shop Boys back catalogue. You can tell that Chris doesn't really know which songs are on which albums, for example. <laughs> you don't think he's got a room full of uh, very rare vinyl then? Well, in his uh, immaculate white <laughs> Designer house, probably not. Maybe just the vinyl factory edition of Electric Spotlit on a, on a single, oh, single show. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> I don't think Chris is really up on the catalogue, and I'm sure it's Neil that essentially carries the Pet Shop Boys' mental load. You can bet it's Neil and not Chris that lies awake at night stressing because it's the wrong version of Heart that's on Pop Art. <laughs> <laughs> But we are getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? So let's set out some facts. Now, there's lots of sources of information. We could go to Wikipedia, but there's really only one that we can go to for this, and that is Smash Hits. Smash Hits. I've got one of your scrapbooks. We've got Smash Hits, Facts Box, number 18, Chris Lowe, open brackets, Pet Shop Boys, close brackets. (laughs) Full name, Christopher Sean Lowe. Date of birth, 4th of the 10th, 59, in Blackpool. Home, North London. Eyes, quite blue, actually. These are all the smash hit. These are all the. This is all the information that anybody needs. Marital status, single. Biggest selling single, West End Girls. About one and a half million copies sold worldwide. That's not bad, is it? Hobbies, non. Car, non. I suspect that's probably changed by now. <laughs> nice minimal answers. Though. Absolutely, yeah. There's not a lot of depth. So, and then we've got uh, we've got four bullet points here then. Chris's first band was called One Under The Eight. He was the ivory tinkler, so to speak. Now, I think he actually played trombone. Ah, well, I was going to say that, so we're, we're, we're doubting this facts box already, aren't we? <laughs> he once claimed that his favourite city was Liverpool. Mm-hmm. He once designed a staircase in Milton Keynes. The famous staircase. The famous staircase. Chris once said, I used to pretend that Tchaikovsky could compose through me. And it worked. <laughs> I love that Tchaikovsky thing. That, that quote used to follow him around. That, that's Chris even managing to devolve responsibility for his songwriting talents. I guess when you look at Neil and Chris, they're both northern, but Neil's got this big city attitude, hasn't he? That kind of bit of ambition that I'm going to be a star. I've got that confidence to do that. Whereas Chris lives in this end-of-the-line seaside town, faded glamour, maybe in decline. Somewhere people come and escape for a few days and then leave. Yeah, I think coming from Blackpool was obviously a huge influence on Chris. It's a holiday town by the sea. It's got the pleasure beach, the piers, the amusements, the bars and clubs. In some ways, does Chris have the air of a man who's permanently on holiday? (laughs) (laughs) He said that the town would be busy all summer and then would immediately go silent and shut down as soon as the season ended and that he would love both of those seasons equally. And I think those extremes are just so Chris. You know, think of those weekend and summer jobs he held as a teenager, glass collecting in a club, even operating the big wheel at the Pleasure Beach. What brilliant metaphors for the job that he ended up doing 
being the silent orchestrator of other people's fun on the periphery, but smiling inside. Did you go to Blackpool growing up, Graham? Do you have Blackpool memories? Yeah, definitely. Well, definitely the Illuminations and the Pleasure Beach. Uh, I remember those trams. You know, you'd sort of wait by the side in the cold, yes. and then all of a sudden this great big illuminated train would sort of yeah, go yeah. past or whatever. I think they still have them, you know. Do I they? they yeah. I have to say I've not been for a few years. Well, not to the Illuminations. I, mm. I go every now and again to the football, which is great. It's always a good excuse to have a, a kind of pre-match fish and chips. Uh, yes, fish yeah. and chips. Fish and chips, yeah. <laughs> Yourself, are you a big Blackpool fan? Oh, I do like Blackpool. I used to go, a friend used to have birthday trips and we used to go to Blackpool quite a few times. I love the Pleasure Beach. I still love that Art Deco entrance with the animals on top. The Alice in Wonderland ride, I remember that particularly. The trams, like you say, fish and chips, got to have fish and chips yeah. in Blackpool. And the smells, not always the best smells. Depends <laughs> which bit of, of Blackpool you're, you're in. But my, my two children still love Blackpool, collecting those tickets from the slot yes, machines, yes, yes. cashing them in for rubbish prizes. The Tower Ballroom, of course, yes. that crops up in a, a Life in Pop, doesn't it? Chris playing the um, the Tower Ballroom organ. And I've been to Blackpool to see Pet Shop Boys a couple of times as well, the performance show and Electric as well. So those are two of my favourite memories of Blackpool. I'm not sure I realised that Electric had toured there. How was that in a smaller venue? So Empress Ballroom 2014, so this will have been the second UK leg of the Electric show. Do you know what? I'm not sure I can remember a whole lot about that particular performance. It was exciting because it was in Blackpool, which obviously Chris's hometown. It's the fish and chips that I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Fish and chips and a pint on the front. I think Blackpool stole the show on that. Well, well, there you go. So in 1978, Chris moved to Liverpool, 50 miles down the coast, to study architecture at the university there. And in 1981, spent a year gaining practical experience in London at Michael Orchid Associates, which was where he designed that Milton Keynes staircase, okay. which Smash It's loved so much and featured in the, the first annual. Yeah. I think I stood outside that building. That the staircase. No. Is yeah, 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 yeah. Did you make a fan pilgrimage no, to the know, staircase? No, do you know it was it was quite bizarre and quite accidental. I had a client that worked in Milton Keynes on this big industrial estate, and one morning I think I was walking to a meeting there. I don't know what it was, but I suddenly had this Milton Keynes staircase, and I thought, well, I'm going to a big industrial estate. I wonder if it's, it's on there somewhere. I think I very quickly Googled it as I was walking and realised that what I think is the building mm. was pretty much just opposite the building that I was going to. So I went and had a, a mooch around it, and there is a very, very similar staircase that you can see from outside. I didn't think I could go in and uh, just start wandering yeah, excuse around. Excuse me, sir, what, what, what are you doing <laughs> co- look- coveting that <laughs> banister? <laughs> yeah. The red bin screen, that's no longer there. The red bin screen? Yeah, if you look in, in annually, there's also this big sheet uh, of red steel that they designed to hide the bins. Uh, <laughs> that's that's no longer there. Well, I mean, I say that, it's not. it wasn't where I could see it, maybe unless it's better hidden. It, it, impressive if it's still there, then. It must be a design classic. Probably just a standard staircase, isn't it? What? <laughs> I'm sure you don't take staircases out. I don't think. Well, I don't think staircases become more modern, do they? I think they they do a job. They don't are they? what they are. Yeah, functional. And, and if it's anything like the building that I was in, that one didn't look like it had been modernised. I'm guessing that it is still there. And of course, it is that period of work experience when Chris comes to London that he meets Neil on that fateful day, 19th of August, 1981. 
that's actually a Wednesday, Graham. I, <laughs> I did look I, that I'm, up. I'm here for the facts. That's what we want. That's it. That's the in-depth knowledge that I, we want. I, I researched that myself. <laughs> that's new, new, a new fact. <laughs> and obviously, from that day on, their lives changed forever, didn't they? Yeah. They immediately started writing songs together, going to the Chelsea Potter pub, drinking pints. Apparently, not quite champagne yet. Yeah. And then back over the road to Neil's flat to doodle on his synthesizer. Chris, of course, used to hang around at the Smash It's offices when Neil worked there. Even did a bit of modelling from time to time. I think there's some pictures of him in the Smash It's yearbook. And obviously, he never even finished his degree course, did he? That, that was it, the, the staircase is all that we're going to get from Chris Lowe, the architect. Well, academia's loss is pop's gain. <laughs> <laughs> They established such a firm identity so early in their career, you know, right from the start. They had an image, a brand, which you could basically sum up in a sentence. One of them wears a suit and sings. The other wears a cap and sunglasses and stands behind a keyboard stock still. Do you remember the brilliant parody of them by Raw Sex on the, on the French and Saunders show? Yeah, it was a little bit too close, really. Was it? It was, I think it was too close to be funny, really, wasn't uh, it? I mean, the song was brilliant as well. That should cover that. Because these rules were so clearly defined, it was always exciting when they broke them or, you know, purposefully kind of messed with that formula. And this was at its most obvious when Chris took the microphone or when he steps outside of his day job and takes the spotlight in some way. So Paninaro, the B-side of Suburbia, that's the first and most obvious example. Suddenly, you've got Chris's voice, part of the Pet Shop Boys musical palette. Yes, it's just a list, but what a list. (laughs) And with that song, a new Pet Shop Boys trope was born. Again, it was just another level to the band, wasn't it? We'd had the 12 inches and we'd had the remixes and now all of a sudden we've got this new element that actually is another singer. Yes, Chris (laughs) is vocalist. So I love the songs where Chris sings, where he effectively just recites a list. Yeah. So we've got I Want a Dog, the B-side of Rent, where he lists the names of dogs. <laughs> where the Pet Shop Boys, which is the B-side of Miracles, where he lists Pet Shop Boy songs. Yes. Thursday, where he lists Days of the Week. Yes. And Time on My Hands, where he lists some numbers. Some, <laughs> some random numbers. Just some random numbers. <laughs> what are your other favourite Chris vocal moments? Um, one of the Crowd, yeah. which was um, one of the B-sides of It's All Right. Heavy on the vocoder. That's the one where Chris goes fishing with his rod. (laughs) What about music for boys? Is that Chris's voice? Um, Now, Subculture, have you heard this? Yes, yes, I I really like this. So this is the track that he did with the band Stop Modernists. I know nothing about Stop Modernists. Not even Google knows a whole lot about Stop Modernists. But Subculture was the cover of New Order single. And Chris sings on this track. I mean, such Chris lyrics. This was obviously a Bernard Sumner New Order lyric, but such great things for Chris to sing so I like walking in the park when it gets late at night and one of these days you'll get back to your home you won't even notice that you are alone those lines are born for Chris to sing I think it's amazing that more artists haven't reached out to Chris for his guest vocals. Wouldn't it be great if Chris cropped up on the next Chemical Brothers oh, album or, 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 or Gorillaz album with Chris Lowe? 
I think they've, they've missed a trick there. There's actually a lot more Chris songs than you'd imagine, mm-hmm. isn't there? So we've got, we have a minute of singing in postscript yes. after the couple of minutes silence after Go West on Vera. Lies. Yeah. Which is almost a proper song, really. It sounds like it was made on a kitchen table in Garage Band, but <laughs> it's a good little song. It's got that loop of female vocals and Chris sort of slightly distorted low in the mix, but that's a it's great def- song. Definitely Chris. This used to be the future. Yeah. Now, you're talking about not knowing which is Chris's vocal. I, I can't tell the difference between which is Chris really? and which is Phil Oakey okay. at all. They well, both sound identical. Well, I don't think that they do. Phil Oakey is Phil Oakey. Well, he is. He is absolutely Phil Oakey. And, and, and I can't say because one's from Sheffield and one's from Blackpool. <laughs> but I've been through that. I mean, I'm not even really sure initially I knew that Chris was singing on that until I yeah. saw it. And the first time I heard it, I didn't realise. Neil's clearly Neil in it. But who's singing which bit in the choruses? <laughs> I'm not sure. Or, or which bit Chris does. Maybe there is a Sheffield filter <laughs> that he's given himself in that song. And then we've got Decide, which was this order to make a decision released round about the general election That's time, true. the B-side of Burning the Heather. And you know, in the middle of autumn, it was cold, and it was wet, and there was this big boom of a song (laughs) we're big fans of chris songs really aren't we and it's not always just lead vocals chris's voice pops up in other unlikely places too think of this must be the place i waited years to leave you've got that vocoder line everybody everybody jumped to attention you remember that as well from the intro to the performance show yes yes and can you imagine if that had been the bond theme that chris would have been singing on a bond theme adele yes i'm not sure i would associate chris with doing a bond theme you've got it's all right where chris on the extended version it's gonna be all right which i think sounds fantastic and then we came from outer space on relentless in the mix you've got chris buried in there there's some samples but then you've definitely got chris you've got that something's not right i can't work it out and don't leave me don't leave me don't leave me i love you (laughs) (laughs) and of course home and dry where you've got one of the few singles where chris makes an appearance you've got him cropping up saying we're going home yeah, so many songs. I mean, we've almost got a Greatest Hits album here, haven't we? <laughs> Maybe a playlist. <laughs> yeah, a playlist. Or a mixtape. <laughs> and of course, when Chris does take the spotlight, he's not always just singing. He's got the moves as well, as we yeah. know, yeah. Uh, as honed at Man Friday's in Blackpool. So, some of Chris's famous yes. dancing moments. Yeah. You've got Paninaro. 1989 tour with yeah, the, the pink cap, cap and the, that luminous jacket. I think he probably did it on the 94 Discovery Tour as well. The What Have I Done to Deserve This video. Oh, yes. You've got the, the, the little dance there. The little classic arm rotations. Uh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and he kind of reprised that, didn't he, in It Couldn't Happen Near, the film, where Neil's on the phone to his mum and then you've got Chris grooving <laughs> on the village green. And finally, maybe, Why Don't We Live Together on the Pandemonium Tour, where Chris climbed out from behind his um, booth and broke into formation dancing with the dancers. And for the performance tour, he went even further still, as well as taking the vocal for We All Feel Better in the Dark, stripped down to his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you do. Like you do. <laughs> when I saw the performance tour in Blackpool, so I'd gone with my friend Paul, my mum, dad and sister were also there, but they were entertaining themselves in Blackpool while we were at the concert. But anyway, they must have got bored uh, and drifted back towards the Winter Gardens and 
came across a tout and of course at this point the concert was well underway so they got a bargain price for these tickets sneaked in under the cover of darkness and when I realised this when I met them afterwards you know they were giggling and oh, we've seen, seen the show as well I was like oh when did you come in basically they walked in as Chris was uh, <laughs> was stripping down to his boxes I, I mean God only knows what they thought they'd walked into <laughs> I mean that is just the least Pet Show Boys thing really <laughs> I think anybody that was there was thinking this is just not a <laughs> slightly off screen. Yeah. <laughs> and also, Graham, of course, multi instrumentalist Chris Lowe doesn't just play the synthesizer, does he? Let's no, no, let's no, no, no. call out some of the many, many other instruments that Chris Lowe has played as a pet shop boy. Yeah. The drums. And I'm thinking the performance of Opportunities on Top of the Pops, really giving those electronic drums some welly, wearing it off the shoulder. Yeah, well, that's exactly how I, around about the time, that's how I was wearing my Nike Cagoule, I think, at the time. It was the only way to wear it, was just (laughs) drip it, sort of just off one shoulder. Chris Lowe style. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it at the end where he throws his sticks into the crowd. I wonder, wonder who got that souvenir. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the third... This was only the third hit single, and already they're messing with the formula, so Chris isn't playing keyboards, he's the drummer. No, and also on that performance, when we eventually get round to doing the Neil podcast, we need to make sure that we mention those white gloves that he's wearing in that performance. It's very Holly Johnson, isn't it? (laughs) They didn't stick around, did they? He wasn't throwing them into the audience, or if he did, I suspect they would have been thrown back. (laughs) And sticking with drums, on the Pandemonium tour... Of course, do you remember he played the kind of Paninaro yes, timpanis yes. which Stuart Price had added to Go West? So yes. two examples of Chris playing the drums. Yeah, maybe that's another sort of career that he could maybe if any bands are looking for a spare drummer, maybe they uh, could yeah. get Chris involved in that as well. Grillers <laughs> put with Chris Lowe on drums. Right, check this out, Graham. Is this is this another fact coming? Uh, well, on the sixth of August, so this is right back in nineteen eighty five. Eighty five, right before they'd had any hits they played a short set at the ICA in London now this was part of ICA Rock Week Blue Weaver joined them on keyboards and they were interviewed afterwards by Max Headroom do you remember Max Headroom? (laughs) (laughs) the short set list was I Want a Lover Opportunities and West End Girls so very short set list check this Chris played trombone on I Want a Lover can you imagine Chris suddenly breaking out the brass oh, i need to hear that we need that don't we <laughs> that needs to make another appearance in the set list doesn't it you know we should start another one of our campaigns to bring back the trombone bring back the trombone <laughs> of course he also plays trombone in the what have i done to deserve this video so that's two songs in his repertoire yeah does he play it he holds it a lot and i think he warms up with it a little bit doesn't he well you don't know this about me graham but i play trombone and i recognize a fellow trombonist (laughs) when i see one and he's got all the right slide positions there we're saying that we should bring the trombone could you do a cover version of i want to love her on the trombone yeah possibly not on mic though (laughs) because i'll ruin your levels i think chris could be to the trombone what lizzo is to the flute (laughs) It could be his new thing. Everything crossed for a trombone appearance on the new album. We 
should also celebrate Chris's use of the keytar. Yeah. The, the keyboard that you wear as a guitar on a strap around your neck. Yes, very it, 80s. Very 80s. It was the ultimate 80s accessory, yeah. I think. A bit like those great big enormous mobile phones and, <laughs> and putting Grolsch caps in your shoes. <laughs> yeah, I remember first time, was it the Domino Dancing TV performances? Again, he's not behind his synth. He's got it strapped to him. Wogan, Top of the Pops. I think he was in shorts as well. Uh, maybe maybe even more of a rarity than the, well, it's than that the Spanish guitar. Gu- it's that Spanish guitar, isn't it? Right, yeah. Me, <laughs> demand shorts. Demand shorts. <laughs> and I think the guitar must have loomed large over the introspective period because he kept it strapped on for left-to-mind devices in those TV performances as well. Perhaps it just got stuck. Maybe they just... Sort of, <laughs> <laughs> or, they were, or they got some sort of contractual agreement or some sponsor or something <laughs> I think my favourite Keytar memories are those of the performance show yeah it's seen where he's playing it sat up in bed what have I done to deserve this yeah. wearing those bright coloured suits in bowler hats standing on surfboards he's got it on there yeah and opportunities how can you expect to be taken seriously where he's dressed as a rock star shaking his head when Neil asks him <laughs> do you have a message for your fans yeah. <laughs> that's a highlight <laughs> and of course the Keytar got a revival in 2020 with the Monkey Business TV performances. Great to see the guitar coming back. Chris Formation dancing, playing the guitar. That's the double whammy Chris Lowe experience. Yeah, and I've just I've just remembered that yeah. he, he also played the guitar on the Funko Pops that ah, they brought out a couple of years back. So yes. he's forever immortalised in plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think my inner teenager was definitely channeling Chris. The sunglasses, the hats, the coats. This is just my entire aesthetic when I was growing up. You sure that's all in the past? <laughs> no, not at all, no. So 35 years later, it's still my aesthetic, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's pretty much my wardrobe that you're describing there. Let's talk favourite Chris outfits. Whenever I think of a great Chris outfit, there's always some Issey element in the mix. One of their great unsung collaborations, I think, of course... Issey Mikey sadly passed away last year. In the original annually, Chris calls Issey Mikey a genius. He says that it's because he used to be an architect just as Chris did, which he thinks explains his sculptural skills. Do you think he finished his course? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you've got those iconic flip-up shuttered Um, striped sunglasses, which he wore in 1986, along with the striped posh boy t-shirt and cap. Such a strong look that obviously inspired Eric Watson's brilliant photographs and then Mark Farrow's fantastic sleeves for the Suburbia formats. The glasses also starred in the videos for Suburbia and Paninaro. Chris wears them for that appearance when he performed Paninaro on the tube too. Of course, they used the photo again on the cover of Catalogue and it's archived in the National Portrait Gallery too. It's probably one of a handful of iconic images which will help define how Pet Shop Boys will be remembered. He bought the glasses apparently from... You see Mikey's shop in Japan. You see, this is the advantage, isn't it, of being a pop star, that you can buy your sunglasses from his Mayaki shop in Japan. I, I think my, my yellow coat that I used to have, I got it from The Gap in the Arndale in Manchester. <laughs> so we're shopping in slightly different places here. I mean, those glasses are great. I love those glasses. They are just a defining image and a defining part of the Pet Shop Boys. Is this the same yellow jacket that Chris wears in the same period with the glasses? I mean, I wouldn't perhaps use the word same, but <laughs> it's certainly inspired. It's certainly inspired, yeah. It was bright yellow. It was a pride and joy, yeah. It was one of those that going to have to have that. I mean, I think back to it, it was just luminous yellow. <laughs> do like that coat. No, I do as well, yeah. But talking of 
is in Mayaki. What about that amazing inflatable blow-up rubber jacket yes. that he wore in 1987 when they performed Rent on Live at the Palladium? That was just fantastic, wasn't it? I mean, it's, I guess, quite outrageous, especially for primetime mainstream television on a Sunday evening. Particularly when you think he got also painted a scar yes, on yes, his face. Yes. That was quite a look. <laughs> So he talks about it in the South Bank show interview that they gave in 1992. He said it was completely over the top and had a lot of attitude and it was ideal for wearing on the London Palladium show because it was so far removed from show business. So when the family viewer switched on, they thought, what's going on here? So he'd purposefully wanted to create a manic look to shock and antagonise the audience. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. Probably says quite a bit about Chris's rebellious streak. And do you remember the host, Jimmy Tarbuck, yes, yes. Um, was certainly bemused. When the camera cuts back to him at the end, his response was, what about that jacket? So, so not about the song or anything. <laughs> what about that jacket? I bet he drinks Carlin Black Label. <laughs> <laughs> such an 80s reference uh, that, isn't and, it? And, and absolutely devoid of humour yeah. <laughs> Tarby, <laughs> Tarby actually refused them the rights to use that clip on the show business video compilation so show you'll remember the television video compilation had all the bits from all the clips from TV shows in between the yeah. videos show business was going to be the same but Tarby said no so that didn't happen he, he said they were miserable bastards, so they couldn't have it. Of course, Neil was particularly proud of being dissed in that manner. And thinking about it as well, did they refuse to do the wave at the end as well? Uh, that's seemed, right. I seem to vaguely remember that... Uh, yeah, uh, we, we wouldn't come on and wave at yeah, the end. Yeah, which I think put them in a unique bracket with the Rolling Stones had been the okay. only bands that had refused to do this at uh, the end. Uh, very good. I mean, at the risk of this becoming an, an Izzy Mayaki podcast... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's also the Izzy Mayaki Mac yes. hat and mad sunglasses that, that Chris paired with a pair of dungarees which made up that bizarre fisherman's outfit yeah. that he wore at the BPI Awards, which was, of course, the old name for the Brits. I mean, this is, I mean, we keep talking about it, but this is proper imperial face stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Winning best group, performing yes. for the only time with, with Dusty Springfield, surrounded yeah. by the grit and the good from the music industry, and Noel Edmonds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> everyone in tuxedos, and you rock up That's looking right. like you've gone fishing. <laughs> you've interrupted yes. a, a sort of fishing trip just to pick up an award or two. <laughs> it's a proper two fingers up, isn't it, to the establishment? Oh, definitely. <laughs> and of course, again, Eric Watson, Matt Farrow pulled another blinder when they put that outfit kind of centre stage on the heart sleeve and the cover of Annually, for that matter, as well. And in Annually, talking about those mad glasses that he wore as part of that outfit, Chris says, these are the most mad-looking pair of glasses I've ever had. <laughs> Against some stiff competition. I'm going to say that is some competition. <laughs> they make you look absolutely bonkers, don't they? I got them from the Isimaki Warehouse. Don't know where that is. <laughs> Japan. Probably. As part of my outfit for the BPI Awards. They work best with the rubber hat I wore then. Without the hat, mad. With the hat. Street. <laughs> so... R.I.P. Isimayaki. Sadly, the only Isimayaki I've ever worn, Graham, and, and been able to afford is the aftershave. <laughs> I don't think we would be doing a Chris Lowe podcast justice if we didn't acknowledge that Chris really likes a good strop, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is pretty much a defining Chris Lowe characteristic. 
why don't we exhume some of his most famous? I'm going to put on a judge's wig. Oh, very yeah, nice. So I've got this. Chris Lowe, you stand accused of being a serial stropper. <laughs> <laughs> right, excellent. I'm up for celebrating the strops. I'll go first. Exhibit one, my lud. <laughs> now, this strop took place way back in December 1984 during the writing sessions for What Have I Done to Deserve This? So remember this song was co-written with Ali Willis, yeah. the famous, now sadly late, songwriter and artist. She also co-wrote amazing songs like Boogie Wonderland and September for Earth, Wind and Fire, and even the theme from Friends. Anyway, this was the first time that Pet Shop Boys had collaborated with anyone, according to Chris. He had to walk out at one point. He found it difficult saying Ali Willis was a very powerful person that he couldn't stand having to fight because it wasn't pushy and he was having to fight to get to a keyboard. I think that's basically why the song's got three different bits by three different people. It's not got that traditional verse-chorus structure. Ali Willis's recollection, as published on her website, is that she remembers Chris being very uptight and stomping out of the room, Neil having to calm him down. Also, she says she was a horrible keyboard player and she was very frustrated because they weren't getting anywhere. I think all in all, that sounds like a bit of a tough session, but obviously uh, the results were pretty spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, an interview with Chris in issue six of Literally. So this is back in December 1992. He says, I don't find working with more than one person easy. I'm not a team person. I've always liked solo sports at school. I never liked it when we have projects to do as part of a team. I don't work well in that kind of situation. I can kind of relate to that. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of any of those things either. Right, well, I've got another strop. It's 1987, mm -hmm. and they're shooting the Rent video. Yes. Uh, and according to the catalogue book, and well documented elsewhere too, Chris stormed off after being kept waiting by the film crew. In fact, Pet Shop Boys even split up at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah, just for the evening. Okay. But, I mean, I'm guessing it must have been quite a strop if you get to that point. <laughs> I mean, looking at the schedule for around that time, they were so, so busy. Yeah. You know, I'm not surprised Temp were afraid at times. I've got another famous Chris Strop. So this was documented in the Literally book on the Japanese leg of the 1989 tour. Chris Heath's two books really do show Chris and Neil Watts and all fantastic documents of what it must have been like to be in the Pet Shop Boys at the height of their fame. In the book, Chris has a strop shortly before going on stage because in his opinion, their reception in Hong Kong hasn't been good enough. <laughs> Shows aren't quite sold out. Literally describes him as being furious that they've bothered to tour here at all. They were proclaimed as second only to Madonna, but there's still empty seats. He says they always complain that big groups don't come, and then when they do, they don't come. And he announces dramatically that they will never return to Japan. Yeah, well, they didn't follow through with that, did they? <laughs> so one strop from 1990... These are all imperial strops, they are aren't imperial they? Yeah, you know, these are very early career. Maybe he's matured a little bit by now. So 1990, and it's the performance of So Hard on Wogan. Oh, yes. And you can see Chris leave the stage really, really quickly at the end. As soon as he plays their last note, there's a quick wave to Terry. <laughs> and, he's, and he's off. In issue four of Literally, Chris explains that they'd been promised an interview and when they got there it wasn't the case and that they were just performing. He says they were in a really bad mood about it all day and, and threatened not to go on at all right up to the last minute. So it felt a bit stitched up by the director so Chris left the stage in the end as a protest. In his own words, I was in a very bad mood. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> right, last one from me, Graham, before we stop celebrating the strops. <laughs> this is from 1991. Maybe the most infamous yeah, this strop. Is my, this is my favourite one. Is it? Yeah, this is my favourite one. Gold medal standard <laughs> strop. So this is from Pet Shop Boys vs. America, the book. 
So the boys were booked to appear on Jay Leno's Tonight Show, very prestigious mm, US TV program. They're going to perform two songs, Where the Streets Have No Name and How Can You Expect to Be Taken Seriously. Chris was worried beforehand to the point where he calls the show's director to be sure that despite the fact that they're going to be performing with two dancers, they've got JJ Bell there as well on guitar, Scott Davidson. He wants to make it really clear that Pet Shop Boys are a duo, that it's Neil and Chris, and that needs to be captured in the choice of shots that the director makes, that Pet Shop Boys are a duo. Shows recorded in real time. Chris can see as he's playing on one of the camera monitors. You see, we're back to him being a hawk and watching things, aren't we? Well, he's watching the (laughs) place where the streets have no name to his mounting horror and anger. There's no shots of him. The cameras have barely looked at him, so he's feeling totally stitched up to the point where he walks off stage mid-song. Neil's left to continue the song minus Chris and even then has to go and be interviewed by Jay Leno by himself. Chris refuses to perform the second song song until they reshoot <laughs> where the streets have no name which given the schedule that the program's obviously been shot on that's not going to happen <laughs> so chris leaves the studio this is a mega strop isn't it this is a proper pet shop boys versus america absolutely and i think my favorite bit of this story is that he got told off by his mum. oh okay <laughs> i think his mum gives him a lecture about professionalism because the family are from musical stock aren't they that's i think right. and have played in orchestras so and that's not know, the dumb that thing. is not the done thing no you don't you don't storm off so uh, yeah it's a it's a great story and when chris didn't appear on stage with neil at the beginning of the glastonbury dream world performance i think we all feared the worst didn't we yes was this another strop <laughs> <laughs> but of course it was that problem with the screen not going up wasn't it yeah and we i mean we talk about chris being this uninterested keyboard player i believe that you know when all of that was flying around and i'm sure it was absolute chaos he was the one that said i'll go up there I'll play that keyboard, it's all going to be fine. I just won't be on stage, so took that lead. I mean, he must have had to make a split-second decision, mustn't it? Apparently, he was dashing up those steps at the back of the stage on his hands and knees, (laughs) getting to that second keyboard so he could play that first note of Suburbia. You you know that he was probably still looking cool and uninterested, though, (laughs) even though nobody could see him. I've I've still got PTSD from watching that that performance that night. I have as well. So, not a strop at all. That's the good news. Yes. So as someone that doesn't really look good in hats, I've always been annoyed by how well Chris is able to carry them off. Uh, yeah, true. Yep. Whether it's the white sailor's hat, the yeah. straw butter, the boy cap, or yes. even just a woolly champion beanie. It really annoys me that they all just work and they all look great. <laughs> he must have a smaller head than me because whenever I wear a hat, I just look like an idiot. I look an idiot in hats too. <laughs> Talking of hats, I love the hats that Chris wore on the 1989 tour, the one that I never got to see. That jewelled motorcycle helmet that he wore at the start of the show uh, for one more chance. The pink baseball cap with that massive peak and luminous uh, lime bomber jacket that he wore for Paninaro. Those outfits, those brilliant outfits, uh, almost never happened. So, again, going back to literally the book, it refers to it as the Chris Lowe stage clothes saga. So this is a saga, not a strop. (laughs) From Neil's perspective, Chris had said that he originally said he didn't want many clothes changes. But from Chris's perspective, he'd been deliberately ignored and overlooked. So a a misunderstanding, basically. Neil had sorted his clothes out on a Sunday afternoon at Derek Jarman's house. 
They'd whizzed through this list of amazing costume ideas, and Neil had said yes to them all. Chris didn't go because everyone had picked up on the idea that he was just going to wear his normal, everyday Chris Lowe clothes. But in the book, this comes to a head at the rehearsal in Japan, and Chris storms off stage at the end, not happy with the few things that he's got to wear. So they head off shopping, and that must have been when he bought all of those amazing tour outfits. I mean, that's a great shopping spree, that, isn't it? We're possibly back to Izzy Mayaki's warehouse. I don't know where you go and buy all these no, things. No, like a, a bejeweled motorcycle helmet. <laughs> Probably quite a bill as well, I don't know. I would have imagined. imagined so, yeah. I think we've inadvertently ended up discussing another strop, haven't we? <laughs> yes, I think we have, yeah. Uh, but, but I think that casts a light on something quite key and maybe it was at the heart of the tonight show strop as well that chris doesn't like it when he's overlooked when people assume that pet shop boys is basically neil i think that's pretty understandable really it's got an insecurity at its heart we should wrap up i think by celebrating one thing we love about Chris which we can't ever take for granted and that's his amazing songwriting skills and his musicianship this man bleeds melody (laughs) (laughs) you know apparently the remixes that they do for other artists they're pretty much all Chris Neil practically just adds his vocal yeah adding a word earn a third (laughs) (laughs) his musical performance style that is just so minimal isn't it it's always a thrill when you occasionally get to see him let rip and show his skills yeah I love that footage of them playing completely live on the old grey whistle test back in 86 opportunities later tonight they're both playing synths and you can see Neil's hands shaking but Chris is just quite deftly swapping hands playing all the different I say playing all the different he's played about six different parts I think (laughs) at the time those opportunities riffs just both hands going for it I I remember seeing that go out live and it really was so exciting I really love a musical show like that to come back where they just strip everything away and and it's just musicians playing it's great there's a real lack of uh, music TV isn't there these days I never saw it but I remember reading in Smash It's review of a short set that they'd done in 1988 it was at the before the act closed 28 benefit at london's piccadilly theater they played one more chance and it's a sin the review said that at the end of it's a sin chris dashed out a rather impressive double-handed keyboard solo <laughs> I've, I've always wondered what that sounded like you know a big solo bit at the end of it's a sin that'd have been fantastic and he played that lovely piano intro to do i have to on the pandemonium tour as well yeah you, know, yeah. you get a whole load of chris before those electronics all just kick in some nights they even left a gap between chris and the track starting for applause i saw them play for all of us live in 2012 with an orchestra i seem to remember chris starting with solo piano at the beginning of that as well and then more recently do you remember back in march 2020 at the beginning of lockdown chris put out that 13 minute clip of him jamming to it's all right what a treat that was so unlike chris which think we've established over the course of this podcast is actually completely like Chris. (laughs) He actually put that out on my birthday. Ah, nice touch. Yeah, so despite the fact that we're in lockdown and all our plans have been cancelled, all the parties had gone out of the window, it was really nice that suddenly look on social media and there's this nice little thing had been put out. So yeah, very grateful for that. Your singular gift on uh, (laughs) what was otherwise a a pretty anticlimactic day. Yeah, well it it made up for all the toilet rolls that I got that (laughs) for my birthday that year. (laughs) Chris Lowe's basically got the ideal job to be Chris Lowe in, basically, hasn't he? The whole Pet Shop Boys project is founded on his own basic instincts. He gets to be 
entirely himself. He gets to veto anything he doesn't want to do. And he gets to make the most of his raw talent as well. Doing what he likes, doing what he loves passionately. <laughs> He's still essentially that Blackpool big wheel operator. He's pressing the buttons to make us all go higher. Scream if you want to go faster. <laughs> and when he's playing live sometimes, if you look really closely, I swear you can sometimes see him break a smile. <laughs> There's a great anecdote in the April 2006 edition of Word magazine. So Neil and Chris have been interviewed for German TV and the interviewer asked Neil what qualities Chris brings to the Pet Shop Boys. The article says, Neil answered at length, touching on Chris's vast musical knowledge and versatility, his energy and humour, his powers of inspiration, his love of both the uplifting and the introspective, his instinctive understanding of what is and isn't a Pet Shop Boys sort of thing to do. And finally, triumphantly on the indisputable fact that without Chris there would not nor indeed could there ever have been a Pet Shop Boys at all. <laughs> then the interviewer asked Chris what qualities Neil brought to the band and Chris thought and thought and finally replied I can't think of anything at all. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Pet Shop Boys In Depth is an independent podcast written and produced by Sykes Payne for F19 Media with music from Paul Jackson. Each episode we're calling out and thanking some of our supporters who've kindly helped us to cover recording and hosting costs. So huge thanks to Patrick Rogers, Christopher Council, Jens Bax, Trevor Hegarty and Pete Buss. And of course we should say a thank you to Neil and Chris themselves and anyone who works with them for 40 years of musical memories. Follow us on Twitter at Pod or via our Facebook page for extra content and to be the first to hear about new episodes. You can help keep these podcasts ad-free by buying one of our exclusive in-depth podcast t-shirts. You'll find all the links in the podcast information or on our socials. And if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe or we'd love it if you wrote us a review. Keep in touch and we'll see you soon. Boys, boys, shop, shop, boys, podcast.